Father in heaven, we thank you so much we have an opportunity to come and study again. We ask that your spirit will join us. Give us discernment. Give us gracious hearts. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number 11 in the quarter of the book of Acts, and it's titled Arrest in Jerusalem. And Arrest in Jerusalem because Paul made the decision to go back to Jerusalem. And if you think, why did Paul make the decision to go back to Jerusalem? I uh, want to read to you out of uh, Romans 9.3. And this is uh, Paul writing. He says, For I I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I I think Paul had a very strong passion for reaching the Jewish people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is, you know, he's he's the the apostle of the Gentiles, but he always has in heart this, this, when can I, when can I reach the, the people of, 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 you know, Jerusalem, the people of Israel, and he's looking for every opportunity. I think this is why he went. I thought a lot about Paul this week. And if you reflected on what it must have been like for Paul, you know, he clearly loved his nation, his people, what you might call his church. He was educated by his church. Many of us were educated by our church, both in, you know, weekly, either Sunday or Sabbath school classes or, or church school. Uh, think about Paul, though. Uh, was Paul able to stick with the interpretations that he was given by his upbringing, or did he have to, you know, adapt and re reinterpret many of the things that he had learned before he actually had, you know, a handle on what was really true? And then, what happened when Paul moved past the traditional views that he was raised in his? you know, home church, the Jewish nation, to believe. What happened when he moved past that? How, how was he treated? Now, if you think about this conflict, see, Paul came back, and this is what we're talking about, he comes back to Jerusalem, and immediately there's conflict with the Jewish leadership of Israel, with Paul. Was the problem primarily one of doctrinal points? Circumcision or not circumcision? Or was the argument over circumcision really the focal point of a deeper problem? Let me put it this way. Why did they, why did it matter what Paul was to them? Why did it matter to them what Paul was teaching about circumcision? Who cares? Why did, why did it matter? What method did Saul of Tarsus use prior to Damascus Road to convert people back to Judaism? Coercion, force, intimidation. What method did Paul, the apostle, use after his conversion? Truth presented in Love leaving people free. We, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind, he writes in Romans 14. You know, did you see a substantial method change for Paul before and after conversion? What method did the Jewish leadership use on Paul and the other apostles when the Jewish leadership disagreed with Paul and the other apostles? Coercion, imprisonment, beatings, remember? Intimidation. Now, we in the SDA church talk a lot about the beast of revelation. What would you say constitutes being part of the beastly system? Coercion. Coercion. Would you agree or disagree that coercion is part of the method of the beastly system? No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Coercion, part of the beastly system. Is it primarily about holding the wrong doctrinal understanding of certain biblical truths or facts that make you part of the BC system. Is that the primary problem? Somebody doesn't understand the, the biblical method of baptism, therefore if they don't have that right in their understanding, that makes them part of the beast? Or is it if they have in their heart and character the willingness to coerce and hurt and threaten and abuse other people who believe differently, that makes them part of the beast? I want you to be clear on that, because many times in Adventist history, it's argued that being part of the beast is having the wrong doctrinal understanding, not the wrong method of application. Let me ask you this question. If one accepts the, the lie that God's law functions no different than human laws, just a system of rules that requires punishment, can you predict how people who believe that will function? Can you predict how they'll function when disagreements come up, when they see people breaking the law as they understand it, and they believe that the law functions like human law? Can you predict how they might likely respond with granting people freedom? It's okay, just do your own thing. We'll just respect that. Or with the need to bring pressure to bear to bring conformity. Can you see the root here? 
Do you think there are any church denominations that are free of this imposed human law construct? Any church denominations that are free of it? Then are there any church denominations that are immune from using the methods of the beast? (laughs) The methods of coercion. Are there any churches immune from that? So I'm going to tell you, it's, it's with a lot of sadness. I, I really empathize with Paul this week. Do you think Paul enjoyed going back to Jerusalem and confronting the leadership, or when he had opportunity for discussion, knew that he had an incalcitrant leadership that didn't want to hear the truth? Do you think that was pleasant for him? He enjoyed that? I don't know that he primarily went to confront the leadership, but he was trying to reach the people. But the people were under the influence of the leadership. So it's Why? A, it, it's, because they were afraid, maybe? Yes. And the, and because they had already been led down the path. Both. Hadn't fought for themselves. Both, both. If you remember the story of the, uh, the man who was born blind and was healed by Jesus, and then, and then he was giving credit to Christ, and they brought his parents in, and, and they said to the parents, is this your son? How was he healed? And the parents said, you know, we know that he was born blind. We know this is our son. We know he can see how he was. He's old enough. He can speak for himself. And the Bible gives a reason why they said that. They were afraid of the Jewish leadership that they would be cast out of the temple. So it was this fear of disfellowship that caused them uh, to submit, so to speak. Yes, yeah, so I think it's both. So I'm going to tell you, it's with a lot of mixed feelings that I'm going to bring to you some things that happened this week. Um, I'm sad that this is actually even going on, but I'm hopeful because, you know, you can't fa- solve a problem until you first diagnose it. You can't fix a problem until you first admit it exists. Yeah. So I don't know if many of you read the article this week by George Knight. Anybody heard of George Knight? He's a well-respected Adventist historian, written 30, 40 books, I don't know how many. And there's an article in Spectrum Magazine this week. I put the link in the notes for those who haven't seen it. You can get the link, you'll read the whole article. And I'm going to read a couple short passages from it. The title of the article is, Adventism's Shocking Fulfillment of Prophecy. And this is what he writes in the first two paragraphs opening the article. For 150 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has faithfully preached the message of Revelation 13, that near the end of time, all the world will marvel and follow the beast who had recovered from his deadly wound. And at the heart of the Adventist's uh, concern was verse 7's prophecy that the beast would make war with the saints and overcome them. What was not predicted by the Adventist evangelists was that the general conference leadership would be joining the beast in its eschatological crusade with the denomination's president leading the charge. (laughs) This is George Knight. Not me. I want to make that clear. I I didn't write this. Some of you might have thought I wrote this. I didn't write this. (laughs) He goes on to document in quite meticulous detail the recent moves by the General Conference leadership to centralize power with a top-down authoritarian structure to enforce doctrinal orthodoxy on threat of punishment, firing from one's job, expulsion from membership, withholding funds from organizations who don't comply with top-down hierarchical structure and, and orthodoxy. He describes in accurate detail the same structure and method used by the Roman Catholic Church in its hierarchical design, then goes on to say the following. This is again a quote from the article. One of the more interesting facts of history is that it took the bishops of Rome 600 years to develop an effective papacy with control over the worldwide church, while Silver Spring is on track to do this in a little more than 150 years. So I want to pause for a moment and make some comments. Because as soon as I read that, I, my, that's not surprising. That doesn't surprise me at all. You see, the bishops of Rome, here's the reason. I understand why this happens. Again, if somebody expect, accepts that God's law functions no different than human law, it's just a system of rules that requires a ruling authority to punish rule breakers versus God as creator and his laws and laws of punctuality are built, those two systems, if you're operating this system, you can predict where people will end up. They will always end up coercing other people. It's the beastly system. 
You can predict this. And so this wasn't a surprise. It took the bishops 600 years because the bishops were what they were doing. They were established. They were supplanting what Christ and the apostles had established. And Christ and the apostles had established the principle of greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. And we ought to give our lives for each other. If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what is right. All law hangs on love for God and love for others. In other words, they, they established Christianity on the principles of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Romans 14, every person fully persuaded in their own mind, design law. And thus, they had to replace an entire foundation that Christ and the apostles laid. It took 600 years for that to actually take over the church. However, the Seventh-day Adventist church has never fulfilled its purpose and fully thrown off the imperial view of God and God's law and stood solely on the three angels' messages of, we worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. In other words, his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And deviations from them are inherently destructive unless God through Christ is working to restore his creatures back into harmony with him and his design. We've never come fully to that position, and we've kept within our our, our structure this false idea that God is an imperial dictator. He does make up rules. One day he will use his power to torture and kill his own children. And because that's been maintained within the system, it's only taken 150 years for it to come to where it's come to instead of 600. But I think we were trying. I mean, I think we see some of that in Ellen White and her progression of writings and what happened to her. And I think, is that one of the reasons we designed our denomination's hierarchy? I'm going to get to that in a moment. I'm going to get to that in a moment. No, you're exactly right. We're trying. I, I just said we've never fully done it. We haven't achieved the goal. When reading, interesting, when reading, if you, if you ever read anything on Spectrum, after this article by Dr. Knight, they open it up for people to make comments. <laughs> and as I was looking and reading down from, through the comments, I came across a, a particular person, because people have their names there, who has been a vocal critic of this class for years, putting up stuff all over the internet, going around passing out cards that we teach heresy and so forth. And not surprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> He voiced his support for the central authority of the uh, central uh, central authority and the enforcement and coercive practices in in compliance with its uh, rules and policies. Doesn't surprise me a bit. Doctor Knight, though, observed in his article that during the Reformation, if you remember the Reformation, there was one central church, Luther and the princes of Germany are rising up. They didn't start out to say, hey, we're going to start our own church. Who'd like to join our church? Come over here. You can become part of the Lutheran church. That's not what happened. What happened was they said, hey, church fellowship, church members, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is, this, the errors have come into the church. We want to reform our church, not start a new church. Remember. Okay. And the church hierarchy says, oh no, uh-uh. No, we've, we've had committees, we've had votes, we've decided, we've heard your concerns, we've listened, we've investigated, we've had the, you know, all these different study committees going on, and, and, and word has come back, and now we voted, this is orthodoxy, you must submit. That's what happened. And the princes of Germany stood up. And this is out of, the, he quotes a book you might have heard of called The Great Controversy. And this is out of that book. A couple of quotes. Let us, uh, quoting the princess, let us reject this decree, said the princess. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. Amen. Do we still believe that in our church? Or the general conference is voted. Submit your conscience to the vote. Hmm. This is another quote, a uh, page later. We protest before God our only creator, preserver, redeemer, and savior, and who will one day be our judge, as well as before all men and all creatures, that we neither consent nor adhere in any manner whatsoever to the proposed decree in anything that is contrary to God, his holy word, to our right conscience and the salvation of our souls. Do we still stand on this? Keep going, uh, same page. A deep impression was made upon the diet by the protesting princes. The majority were filled with amazement and alarm at the boldness of these protesters. Who dare stand up and tell the leadership that they're wrong, that they don't have the right to tell us what to believe? Who would dare do that? Who would dare say, you have the freedom in your relation with God and the study of his word to have a, your own conscience? Yes. 
I don't know where you're going, but I read the same article last night, and I feel like George Knight was quite a ways off base. Okay, so we'll let you share why you think so in a moment. Let me let me finish the point, and then I want to hear why you think he was off base. Yeah, I feel like it might take a little bit of time for the class, and I always prefer to hear you teaching your class. So, because I don't think George Knight brought all the pieces together. I think he just identified one thing, and I'm already bringing in some pieces he didn't. Right, I agree. This is one last quote that he quoted in the article of the Great Controversy. The principles contained in the celebrated protest constitute the very essence of Protestantism. Now, this protest opposes two abuses of man in matters of faith. The first is the intrusion of the civil magistrate, and the second, the arbitrary authority of the church. Do you, anybody disagree with that? The protest, the Protestant Reformation was protesting the arbitrary authority of the church over people's consciences. And we spend a lot of time on the first part, but very little time on the second part of those two principles. So do you believe you have the responsibility to think for yourselves in matters of conscience? Do we have people like the princes of Germany who can stand up to the authority and say, hey, you know what? You're wrong. Yes. Not many. Let's look at God's method. And you look at through all history. Look at in heaven before there was even earth, before there were human beings. God's method presents truth and love and leaves its intelligent beings free. Even when that freedom resulted in a rebellion. That's how God did things. And in heaven, if you read how things unfolded with Lucifer's rebellion, God never used coercive pressure. God never threatened them. God never said you better or else. God left them free. There were consequences to their wrong choices, terrible consequences, but those consequences come because they took themselves out of harmony with how God built life and health to operate. Satan's method. It's not truth and love and freedom. Satan's method is lie, selfishness, and coercion. Lie, selfishness, and coercion. That's Satan's method. Threats of punishment. Now consider the functional difference in the ability of, in, in the earth today, post-fall, post-Christ, here we are, near the end of time, the ability of truth to advance, and you know truth is unfolding, right? Truth is advancing on any sphere, whether it's biblical truth, whether it's medical truth, whether it's science and technology truth, any truth to advance in the human, in the world, in, in humanity. Does it happen like this? One day everybody wakes up and we all have the same understanding of new truth. It just, everybody understands it at the same time. And we all accept it equally. Is that how truth moves forward in the world? On any subject? No. It doesn't matter. We're not talking just religion now. I can give you stories from medicine where when germ theory came about and they started, uh, uh, you know, Pasteur and Lister started documenting the importance of hand washing and surgical preparation and sterilization, how the vast majority of the world's medical community rejected it. They wouldn't accept it. So how does truth move forward? Think this through. It's a critical point to then how we understand how the church organization should structure. We'll come back to how our church was designed versus and God's methods versus Satan's methods. Does truth move forward by the whole world coming to it at once, or typically some voices of truth arise? And those voices of truth present the evidence. And that evidence resonates with other people whose minds are open to truth. And they test it. And they realize that it works. And it really is better this way. And that then spreads from person to person through a community. And this is how truth advances. First it's ignored. Then it's ridiculed. Right. Then it's violently opposed. Then it's accepted as self-evident. But but that process it is organic. It's organic. People get convinced in their own conscience that, hmm, that is self-evident. It spreads. Now, can, with, that, with, with your understanding of how truth actually spreads, knowing that God wants the truth to spread through the world, which method do you think is going to be more consistent with advancing truth a method with central hierarchical organization that determines from a papal throne or a general conference throne, this is orthodoxy, and then we use coercive pressure to shut down divergent views, or having, and here, here's how our church was organized to start with. It was organized for the general conference to establish the 
um, the denominational positions on various things that the official church represents or takes. But the church, the general conference on our organization was never given any authority to enforce, only to establish the definitions. Here are the definitions of what we have, the Sabbath, the Trinity, the state of the dead. They established the definitions, but they were never given authority to enforce anything. The way our church was designed was local authority. So the general conference never had the ability to hire or fire the local pastors. That was the local conference, local churches and local conferences. Never had the authority to bring into membership or disfellowship from membership. That was the local churches. That's how it was structured. The conference would then establish a, here's what the official church position on things are, but the local churches had the authority. That's how it was done. Now, there's a reason for that. Think about how truth grows. Think about how truth grows. If you have 100,000 churches, and they each have their own authority, which you all know they do, you can be disfellowshipped in church over here, go over to that church, do a profession of faith, you're back in good membership. Because that church doesn't recognize the authority of this church. You know the local boards have their own authority, right? That's how it was designed. For a very good reason. Truth comes up in the minds of people and they begin to share it. And if that church goes and then they share it with their local church and then the local conference and the local conference to their, their unions and their unions to their divisions, eventually the world church is influenced by that. But people grow at different rates because of different cultures, because of different backgrounds, because of different biases. And truth isn't advancing in the same pace all over the world. But when you have a central hierarchy that says, hey, you know what, this is the official position. This church over here, this preacher over here, this leader over here, they're, they're challenging one of our, our, our fundamental tenets over here and how we've always taught it. Well, we need to t- bring them under the, under the rule. Hey, you either stop teaching this, go back and correct what you've done, stick with what the orthodoxy position is, or else you're fired. And what do we do? We keep filtering out the voices of truth. Truth can't advance this way. And thus the church stays stuck, organizationally stuck. Under the guise of unity. Yes. Right. So do you see now that one methodology, I think the methodology, oh, and by the way, and then when the, when the truth spreads from local groups to local conferences to local unions to divisions and eventually into the world, then one day the general conference and committee updates their official position of the church stance and the church changes its position on a particular view of something. But only when there's enough consensus in the world for that official position. But the official position is the general conference has no ability historically to enforce along individual or local members. That now is in the process of being changed. That now is in the process of establishing a, a, a compliance committees at every level of the church organization to enforce that people abide by the ruling authority's orthodoxy position. Or else there'll be some type of consequence to bear, either financial or employment or so forth. Or even removing properties and so forth from the from the local membership. Sound familiar? That, that's another reason why you, you never want to turn the title of your church over to your local conference. But but that you can't be a member. In an, in an Adventist, you cannot be a member of a, uh, the church cannot be a member of, a, of an Adventist church and use the Adventist name if the property isn't deeded to the conference. Well, this, this what you're, where you're going goes back decades. The control thing has always been there, Tim. Um, but but it was organized the way I said it no, to prevent this. You couldn't be employed by the church unless it was proven you were paying time. I mean, I can even go back to the '70s when. Uh, students on at least one student on the campus walks up to Melvin Campbell and says, "Can we think outside the box?" And Campbell looks at him, the academic dean, and says, "If you don't like it, you can leave." Yes, you've always had these struggles, but the tie thing you've a little bit misstated because they didn't really have that. They, they did them the favor of just removing their tithe before they paid them. No, it was mandatory. There are situations where if you didn't pay tithe, it's yeah, I understand what you're saying, but it was it's also a precursor to employment. Mm-hmm. But that would just be a contractual relationship. This is your this is your dues fee to be employed. <laughs> your union dues. Yeah, your union. Yeah, your union dues. That's it. So, so, but but the but the point I'm making here today is, as we move forward, 
how does truth actually go? And I'm, I'm actually was hopeful when I read this article. Mm-hmm. I was very hopeful when I read this article because it's bringing out in the open a problem that's been going on for, as you say, a long time. But people have denied and distorted and actually justified and validated. And, and, and the person, the one person that I t- mentioned a moment ago argues that it's absolutely the right of the organization to enforce its policies upon its members. Well, if you hold to the human law construct. Well, that, that brings up another thing from a organizational structure standpoint. Okay, I, I am on the record as being not a fan of these committees and all the other stuff. But from an organizational structure standpoint, can you have a cohesive organization when you have so much fractionalization within the ranks? Yes. You can. Yes, if you leave freedom. Yes. If it's left with local control. Yes. You absolutely can. We've historically done this. Why do you think we've historically had um, black conferences in the southeastern part of the United States, but no other conference in the world has had those black conferences? Why? Why have we done that? Because there were biases and prejudices in the minds of, of Americans, particularly white Americans, uh, against blacks in this country that really weren't as prejudicial in other parts of the world. And so it was beneficial to have that. But it's not a biblical position that we segregate based on race. What? Theological centrics. Those are social and, and regional. Those are social okay. centrics. Make your point. What's your point? Well, let's say you have a college that decides to teach evolution. Let's say you have another area that decides to say, you know, this non- is a, uh, what is considered a non-standard is acceptable. You're, you have fractionalization along theological lines. How do you handle that? So, so you've raised different issues. Okay. So you're mixing apples and oranges now. Well, what you've raised, no, what you've raised now is an institutional entity promoting a process or program different than an individual's belief in a local church membership. We're not talking about the, the organized, um, the, the church owned colleges and schools which are owned by the church. Okay, that's a different issue than the church membership and the personal conscience of belief. Those are different issues. Okay, I don't know that. But what, I, what I'm hearing from the start was the church wanting to maintain its structure, which is another argument for another time. But um, and, and their problem being because the church wanted to maintain its structure and its standards. So, so is this conversation making some people uncomfortable? No. Because the statement you made, the church wanting to maintain its structure. The point that I'm bringing forth is it's changing its structure, not maintaining its structure. Okay, That's the point I'm making, that they're changing from a local um, uh, authority to a centralized, top-down authority. That is not maintaining its structure. It's a reformation in a somewhat, according to Dr. Knight, beastly way. You will have to be persuaded in your own mind. Do you think that the way... Now, certainly, God is the supreme sovereign and authority of the whole universe. No question. But how does he use or wield his power? What method does he use to govern? Does he use the method of a sovereign dictator? Do it or else I'll punish you. That is the view of Satan and the majority of the world. That's Satan's allegation. It is the exact opposite of what Christ demonstrated. He who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but surrendered himself in the form of a servant all the way down to the, to the cross, did not use power to force his way, but pre- presented truth and love to win hearts and minds because what God wants from us, he wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our de- devotion, our loyalty, and you can never get love, trust, loyalty, devotion by top-down, authoritative, coercive enforcement. You can't get it. And this is why, while God is sovereign, He runs His universe in harmony with His character of love on the design laws about how He built reality to run. He never uses these methods. Now, Ellen White, as you mentioned, was a staunch advocate of what I'm saying here today, and she vehemently opposed this type of central authority, and, and, and the point I was trying to make, and I hope you all see it, this is the inevitable place you arrive if you exchange the truth of God's law for the lie that it runs like human law. 
And this infection that our church, many Adventists believe and have said that the Adventist church was just the final not, final link in the chain of the Reformation. You, you, Luther and so many, the Reformation was a process going on, unfolding a, a truth on, uh, over time. And the Adventist church was the final step to finish the Reformation. And many Adventists say, and that, that final piece was getting the Sabbath. No, it wasn't. There were Seventh-day Baptists. The final piece was coming to recognize that we are to worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that. To creator worship, which is design law and re-embrace God's true laws and reject these human imperial law concepts. That's the final piece that our church was called to bring people to. Amen. Anyway, we'll move on. I got an email from somebody who said, you know, you use the Adventist quarterly, but you seem to disagree with it a lot. <laughs> Why use it if you don't agree with it? Why use an, an, a document that you seem to find fault with? And multiple reasons. One, the we have thousands of people who watch this class each week who are either participants in or teach classes using this each week, and they very much have emailed me. I've had really, really so many people email me to me how much they appreciate me using it and, and, and sending out notes and so forth that helps them in their local churches. But I think it's important to help people discern the difference between the two. You know, you can simply get up and preach what health looks like. But in medical school, they don't just preach what health looks like. In medical school, they also teach you what pathology looks like, what sickness looks like, contrasting it with health. So you can recognize that that's not healthy. Now, if you only focus on the pathology and there's no cure, there's no remedy, there's no health, that's really depressing. So I try to be a balancing here to show, hey, here's a symptom of an illness, but here's the solution. Here's what health looks like. So we have an alternative. We have to stay stuck there. There's more to life than the party line, too. Yes. So I would say that rather than some, some have accused this class of somewhat being negative towards the church. I am, I am not being negative at all. I'm being, uh, in fact, I would take just the opposite that this, this class is a real demonstration of love. Because if you saw someone you loved engaging in activities that you knew were injurious and harmful to them, would you stay silent? Or would you as kindly and graciously and effectively try to help them see the danger that they're in? Now, of course, they're free to persist down that path of danger if they're an adult. But you don't just stand by quietly and say, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings, so I won't say anything. I don't want to be viewed as maybe being critical, so I'll just be quiet. I want people to think good of me, not, not save the person I love. And I love the church. And I really, really want, just like Paul 2,000 years ago, so much wanted his people to come see the reality of Jesus Christ. I want our people to see the reality of God's beauty and his character and his design law. And let people say, well, why aren't you at the GC talking to the GC about this? Did Jesus go to the Sanhedrin to try to persuade them or did he go to the people? Did the apostles go to the Sanhedrin? Every time Jesus was meeting with church leaders, it was always their instigation to try to trap him. He never sought an audience with them. And so we want, we understand that truth is organic. It, it goes from person to person, heart to heart. And so we want to share it with the people. Even if I could meet with the GC and they accepted it and they passed a resolution endorsing what we teach, that doesn't do anything for the people in the pew. Sunday's lesson. It focuses on, uh, says, second paragraph says, in Acts 21, 18 through 22, James and the Jerusalem elders expressed their concern about Paul's reputation among the local Jewish believers, uh, zealous of the Mosaic law. They had been informed that he was teaching the Jewish converts who lived abroad to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. Was Paul, what was Paul actually teaching people? What's the truth? Christ and Christ crucified. Okay, regarding circumcision, what was he teaching people? 
is not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for salvation. That's exactly right. That, that it's a symbol. He also taught it was a symbol of the, the reality of circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. He taught those things, right? Is teaching that circumcision of the body is not necessary for salvation and that it is a symbol of the true circumcision of the heart, is that the same thing as teaching people that they should not have their, their Jewish people should not have their children circumcised? Is that the same thing? So when, maybe you answer this next question. If, if it's not the same thing, why then were the Jews alleging Paul was telling people not to circumcise their children if Paul was only teaching them and it wasn't necessary for salvation and it was a sign of what was? Why were they, why were they alleging then that he was teaching people not to circumcise their t- children? The Jewish people at the time had a very strong belief that this was a requirement, an absolute requirement. Was it? Was it though? Was it a requirement? For the Jews. Was it? Yes, but with inclusion in the committee. So again, was Paul teaching that circumcision wasn't requirement to be included in the tribe? In the tribe of Judaism? No. That was a requirement. Are you saying then that they thought they had to be circumcised to be saved? I think they, they thought that everyone had to be circumcised, regardless. That's a rule. They were following a rule. A rule for a purpose. And what was the ultimate purpose? They're, they're not talking about purposes. They're talking about following the rules. But there's a purpose. Because if you don't follow the rules, what happens? You get, you get in trouble. To stay out of trouble. And who are you in trouble with? But with this, was it a matter of then them doing this right to then be a part of the only people that were going to be saved? Correct. This is the next point. Only You could only be saved by becoming a member of the Jewish nation in their mind. This is another reason they hated Paul. We'll get to it further in the lesson. They hated because he was offering, supposedly, telling that, that anybody could be saved even if they weren't part of Judaism. And so circumcision was the gateway to membership. It would be like going out and saying, hey, you could be saved by not being an Adventist. How, how dare I? You know, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek for anybody who doesn't know I was just being... T- okay, okay. But there are some people who believe that. Or you could be saved. Here's a Christian one. You could be saved without going through water immersion. Some Christians deal with that like the Jews deal with the circumcision. No, circumcision is your gateway. You have to go through that ritual to, in order to enter into the community for salvation. You have to go through the dunking before you can actually ever be saved rather than the dunking is a symbol of the fact you've already been saved. <laughs> and where Paul was going, establishing that the relationship between you and your God, you and your Savior, you and your friend, is what's important, not being a member of any organization or club. And the people that were running the organizations and the clubs, and still do run the organizations and the clubs, see that as a threat. So I want you to see really here the deal what happened here. Break it down because we face this today. Paul is teaching truth. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Ergo, becoming a member of the Jewish nation is not necessary for salvation. This is the truth. Circumcision was a sign or symbol of a changed heart that was achieved by faith. Abraham, Romans 4. Okay, This is what he's teaching. Nowhere does he say, Jewish parents, stop circumcising your kids. Nowhere does he say that. But the Jewish people come along and say that Paul is teaching Jewish families to stop circumcising their kids. This is a fabrication. This is a falsehood. This is an interpretation, an application, uh, extrapolation of something Paul is teaching that they've created in their own mind to attack and uh, undermine Paul. Why? I want you to see why. Because of the points we put out here a moment ago, they have connected membership in Judaism, which was um, achieved through the circumcision of the males, with the path to salvation. Thus, when Paul says circumcision is not necessary for salvation, they're saying, well, then their circumcision has no purpose. He's telling people not to do it anymore. They've taken that leap. Well, we've experienced the same thing. Some of you, I know, have experienced it. When we say to people, Jesus did not have to die to pay a legal penalty to his dad so his dad won't be legally required to kill us. That is not why Jesus had to die. And some people turn around and say, Jennings, come and reason, teaches that Jesus didn't have to die for our salvation. If I were to say this, Jesus did not have to die in order for textile manufacturers to make red shirts. It was not necessary for Jesus to die for that to happen. 
Would you agree with me? Is that the same thing as saying Jesus didn't have to die for our salvation? That's not the same thing, is it? So when I say Jesus didn't have to die to pay his father a legal penalty, that is not the same thing as saying Jesus did not have to die for our salvation. Those are two different things. I just This reason wasn't the reason for our salvation. It wasn't needed. That's not the purpose. But if that's the only purpose you have in your mind, and you take that away, then those people go, Jennings just says Jesus didn't have to die. Never said it. Never said it. Go ahead. Also, the, the whole concept of how Paul approached God and salvation and our relationship with God was not rules-based. That's right. They had a group of people who were absolutely rules-based. Fourth paragraph says, Paul was advised to be politically correct. He should show the falsity of the rumors about him by doing something very Jewish, sponsor the Nazarite vow of some Jewish believers. This vow was a special act of piety through which a Jew could, would consecrate himself to God. Good idea or bad idea to be politically correct here? Awful. Bad idea, <laughs> always. Well, okay, so, so was Paul's intention, now notice the intention here, to seek peace, to seek reconciliation, to not offend for no good reason. Was that intention a bad intention, a bad goal? No, it was perfectly good intention. It was a very healthy, mature intention. Then if his intention was so good, why was the action not good? You guys need to understand that. He had good intentions, good heart motives. Then why was the action not good? Because somebody recognized him at the temple. But he wanted to be recognized at the temple. It was his goal to be recognized in this conciliatory act to do something very Jewish so that people would say, ah, Paul is not undermining the law of Moses. Paul's a supporter. He's doing the Nazarite vow. It was He wanted to be recognized as a person. That was the purpose of the political correctness. And it's like... Uh, well, I just had an idea pop into my mind, but it was it was from a movie scene once where a guy was uh, was going to wash some dishes and start the dishwasher, but he waited till his girlfriend walked in because he wouldn't get credit if she didn't see it. <laughs> okay, it doesn't count if it's not seen, see? It wouldn't count for Paul. He wasn't doing it for his benefit. He was doing it to influence these people to show that he wasn't, these allegations against him were false. So he had to be seen. Yes. Farther in that same paragraph that mentions the first Corinthians nine, where he was a Jew to a Jew, a Gentile to a Gentile, whatever. I don't understand truly the difference between what he was doing here, where he's trying to be a Jew for a Jew, from what he did elsewhere as an advocate for his example. So is there a difference between, let's say, knowing that a group of people would be offended if you showed up at their church and you're coming to be a guest speaker, you're coming to try to influence them, and they would be offended if you showed up without a tie, and so you wear a tie. Is that the same thing as um, participating in a religious service that would make people believe you value something you don't value? For instance... You go take mass at a Catholic church and you do do a confession with a priest. Would that be the same thing? Being a Catholic to Catholics, so you're going to go do confession in the confessional and take a Eucharist at the Catholic church because you don't want to offend them. Is that the same thing? As, as, or would that give credence to that whole system that you don't want to give credence to? You're not certain there's a lot of difference? What do you all think? Do you think there's a difference between doing those two things? A significant perception of a double standard and of a, of a split mind. Uh, of, of truly How can he validate the Nazarite vow at the same time he invalidates the need for circumcision? It's, it, it comes across hypocritical. Yeah, and so that's why in that context... So when he says uh, being a, a Jew to Jews, I don't think it means uh, a hypocritical stance. That means it means not necessarily offending uh, on things for them where they're at, but not doing things that would cause himself to 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 appear inconsistent. And that's why I think this was the problem here. I think it set him up. It put him under the authority of that system. As soon as he went into their system and tried to get their approval, he put themselves back, he put himself back, and that's exactly what happened. What happened was, I'm going to do your system by your rules, 
play your game, do your stuff so you'll recognize and validate and sign off on me as an orthodox brother of Judaism. I'm surrendering to your authority on this, is what he was doing. By doing this thing, politically correct, let's get this organizational approval on what you're doing. And I think that was a mistake. He had Christ's approval for what he was doing, and he didn't need to submit back to this organization. And what happened, once he put himself under their authority, they used that authority. And, and his life went from one of freedom to imprisonment for the rest of his life. He was imprisoned for the rest of his life after that. There's an object lesson in that. He lost his freedom by submitting to an authority that wasn't Christ. So I think that was probably the, the mistake. Monday's lesson, notice what happens next. This is very interesting. If you, again, keep in mind what we started the class on. Methods and principles. Not specific doctrines. Methods and principles. Second paragraph, Monday's lesson. A riot ensued caused by those who stirred up the crowd against Paul, accusing him of attacking the most sacred symbols of Jew, Jewish religion, in particular of having desecrated the temple. As one of Paul's traveling companions was a Gentile believer from Ephesus named uh, Trophimus, they thought the apostle, notice, they thought the apostle introduced him into the temple inner court where only Jews could enter. If the accusation were legitimate, Paul would be guilty of the most serious offense. Along the wall that separated the outer from the inner courts were signs in Greek and Latin warning Gentile visitors not to enter farther in, otherwise they would be personally responsible for their ensuing death. Okay? So, what, why did this riot ensue? What caused the riot? People didn't understand truth. What truth did they not understand? Paul didn't do anything wrong. Okay, so, let's, so you, you said it very interestingly. Say it the other way. They believed a lie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, they believed a lie, didn't they? They were being told and they were being probably... And so a riot started based on an allegation without evidence. Wow, we don't see that happening in society today, do we? Collusion with Russia. What? <laughs> we don't see... I'm not even talking about that. I mean, it used to be... You know, most of you are, are old enough to remember that in America there was something that you don't hear about anymore. Yeah. Presum innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. The presumption of innocence. Do you, do you remember those good old days? The good old days, where you're presumed innocence until the evidence is substantiated of guilt. Not any longer. Our society has moved into the world of allegation is guilt. It's really, really corrosive. But I want to go further about methods. Even though, even so, even though there's an allegation, even, and let's just take it, let's say the allegation were true, <laughs> but it's not. There's a lie. But they believe it's true. So in their minds, now they think it's true. They think Paul has brought in somebody who's not allowed to be in the, a, a Gentile. Why riot? Think that through. What does it say about people who would use methods of coercion, violence, force, even if something they believe to be sacred were profaned? What would it say about you? Do you remember? I think it was 20 years ago now, maybe 30. Getting old. Maybe it was 40. <laughs> but there was an artist that took a cross and, and submerged it in urine. Do you all remember that? It was all over the news. How did the American Christian community respond? Were there riots? There were not. There was no violence. There was disgust. That's disgusting. Sadness. We were emotionally revolted by it, disheartened, saddened, as you say. But there was no attack on him. There's no violence. There's no life threats. What do you think would happen today if somebody took a Koran and submerged it in urine? What do you think would happen? Or drew a comic on the front of a magazine. Or drew a comic of the prophet on a magazine. What, what happens? Or maybe goes to a liberal university to give a conservative speech. What happens? What does it say? The Holy Spirit has withdrawn because we're no longer listening. That's exactly what it says. For him to dwell. 
Does it reveal something? Remember, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring forth good of the good stored up in them. Evil people bring forth the evil of the evil stored up. Do you, do you think diagnostically, when you see this type of function happening, are you allowing your mind to go, what is it revealing me about the people who do these things? It's diagnostic. The good tree brings forth good fruit and so forth. It reveals the character of these people. They are not operating on the principles of Christ. You remember, Christ said to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies. Your enemies, the ones who will spit on you and profane you, we don't ride against them. It also reveals one of God's laws, more than one of his laws, the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become to be like in character the God that we admire and worship. And so when people use those methods, you can get an insight into the being they worship, whether it's themselves or whether it's some other deity that they hold sacred. But I can tell you, God doesn't use that stuff. God presents truth and love and leaves people free. The people that do this don't understand design law. Would you need to take a violent action against a two-pack-a-day smoker because they're breaking the laws of health? You don't need to. You feel sad for them. But you don't need to take action against them. And that's where the Christian community, at least 30 years ago, responded. They realized the person who did this was rejecting their source of salvation. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow, how sad for them. That's how the Christian community responded, not, oh, we need to destroy them because they're profaning our sacred symbols. Yes. I have to remember that as I I participated in a road rage incident this past week. And uh, you realize that sometimes you don't live by the laws that you intellectually. (laughs) Wednesday's lesson. And it talks about how Paul is uh, being tried and about how um, they struck him and about how he, you know, called them to account. How dare you strike me? You're not even keeping your own law and so forth. And, And Paul's quick to point out that the lawlessness of those who are there to enforce the law and how they break their own law. And this is what you always have with the imposed law people. Imposed law people always break the law. Always. They will break their own rules, making loopholes and exceptions that they get to, to sneak through. Look at some of the power brokers we're seeing in the country historically and so forth, and how they always seem to be able to skirt the rules for themselves. But I want to point out that these imposed law keepers always break design law. You see, when they, when they begin coercing to enforce the orthodoxy, they're violating the law of liberty, the principle of freedom. They're violating the law of love, which is part of God's design. And there's always negative consequences that come to bear. Many of us heard with great sadness the news a few weeks ago in Pennsylvania, where a grand jury indicted 300 priests for molesting more than 1,000 children over 70 years. You all heard that, right? How could this happen? And I'm not bringing this up to cast stones at another organization, but because it serves as an object lesson to discern the problem of replacing God's design with imposed arbitrary rules. So how did this happen? God's design for human relationships was replaced with an arbitrary rule of no marriage and celibacy. And this arbitrary rule by the organization called caused what we call a selection bias. What's a selection bias? A selection bias is when you put a filter on your potential pool of candidates so that you don't select from all the possible candidates. You've, you only select from a subset that you filtered. For instance, priests can only be men. We have just eliminated half the population. We won't even consider women. They're not part of the set. We draw only from men now. That's a selection bias. Okay? Well, what do you think happens when people are in late adolescence, high school and college, and they're contemplating a career path, and their natural, God-given, biological desires for sexual relationships and intimacy are typically at their peak, and they're considering a path that says, if you take this path, you're never going to have sex, and you're never going to have an intimate relationship with somebody. 
Do you think that causes a selection bias? Do you think the healthy heterosexual men are disinclined to take that role? It does. You're not, you're not selecting from the entire population of heterosexual men now. You're selecting from a group that, that would, would be comfortable with that path. Additionally, you may actually increase the likelihood of people with sexual deviations. People who, in their conscience, they've been raised to love God and they love God, but they've got certain desires or longings that they feel guilty for, that they are not happy with, that they want to be delivered from. And those people may think, if I dedicate myself to God, that he'll deliver me, number one. And number two, I'm choosing a career path where I'm not allowed to ever act on those things that I shouldn't act on. And thus you get a higher concentration of pedophiles in the priesthood than you do in the general population. This is the consequence of of replacing God's design with arbitrary rules. One place that you can see. Knowing that, you you have to ask the question, how can it not happen? Not how does it happen, but how... how, Well, that's my point. It's a predictable outcome. It is a predictable... When you understand design law. And then then the institution, once the abuse is uh, known within the institution... What's the institution do? Protect the innocent or protect the institution? Circle the wagons. Protect the institution with cover-ups. Returning to God's design law is how we protect. We heal. We eliminate or reduce the selection bias, and we put the healing of others first. What's the chances that institution will change its policies, arbitrary rules, on the priesthood? What's the chance that's going to happen? What's the chance they're going to step up and say, you know what? We were wrong. It is not God's design for priests to be celibate. Do you think they'll stand up and own that? What do you think would happen if they left it up to the membership locally? Do you think there's some Catholic local members that would actually allow their priest to marry? Absolutely. Ah, see the problem with top-down authority versus bottom-up authority? See how truth is impaired and can't grow in the system? Do we want our, our, our system to go that direction? The Jews in Caesarea plotted to kill Paul. Uh, Forty of them, I think, took an oath that they were going to kill Paul. And the lesson asks, what does this teach us about how passionate people can be for causes that are wrong? How passionate can they be for causes that are wrong? I would suggest to you they're often more passionate for the wrong cause, especially in a violent way, in an angry way, in a hostile way for the wrong cause. Um, generally, when you're passionate and love, you're much, much more peaceful and, and compassionate unless you're simply uh, lovingly trying to protect someone who's in danger. And that can be, that you can get aggressive in your protection but not to hurt, not to harm. Can you think of any causes today in which people are passionately wrong? Russell, don't say anything. (laughs) Passionately holding my tongue. Okay. And have you ever noticed that the more passionate somebody is, they're often less open to be corrected? They're less open to have dialogue or discussion. They're less open to be reasoned with. And when you bring in reason and evidence, reason and evidence is often met with anger, hostility. Again, liberal universities, when a conservative speaker comes, they riot. But they proclaim they're all about liberty and freedom. But they riot and they don't want to hear it. Why don't they want to hear it? Well, this is what Jesus meant when he said, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and tear you apart. He wasn't saying don't cast your refuse, your waste products, your criticisms, your negativity. He wasn't saying that because you could offend somebody and get their feelings hurt. They could attack you. No, he's saying don't cast your pearls of truth, your pearls of wisdom before those who don't want to hear it. It'll only enrage them and they'll attack you. Uh, So I want to finish on this. I think it's an insightful thing. Do the methods employed indicate anything about the cause that's being promoted. It kind of brings us back to where we started. At least the motives of the ones promoting the cause. And let's talk this. Was prior to the crucifixion, were Peter and Jesus promoting the same cause? What method did Peter use when the soldiers came to arrest Christ? And what did... Jesus say to him just before then and right after that, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. Were they both at that time promoting the same cause? 
See, it's confusing, isn't it? Did it appear that they were promoting the same cause? Did they, did, did, would Peter have given protestations and proclamations that he was promoting the cause of Christ? Yes, to Christ himself, he did. He made that same protestation to Christ. I'm promoting your cause. Was he actually promoting the cause of Christ? Get your mind around that. That's deep. Why did Peter come down on the wrong side in what he was doing, even though in his mind he thought he was promoting Christ, but he wasn't? Could Christians today, see how we're coming full circle at the end of class? Could Christians today be vulnerable to promoting the wrong cause under the right banner? In other words, the wrong methods. The wrong methods, if you don't get the word cause, if that's too confusing. The wrong methods, the methods of coercion, intimidation, top-down control, under the banner of honor to Christ and love for the brethren. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we desperately need your Holy Spirit, your spirit of truth and your spirit of love and, and discernment and wisdom. And you know, we're in a perilous time in Earth's history. You know, we're told that the, the enemy will be like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and that the subtle deceptions at the end of time will be so subtle that even the elect, if it were possible, could be deceived. But Lord, we pray that your spirit of truth will dis- give us the wisdom, discernment, and capacity to, to, to not only grow in our own journey, but to share this truth, to reach others, to free minds that, that, that have good hearts and want to do right, like Paul wanted to do right. But maybe they're, they're being influenced by people who who don't really fully appreciate the the end game of where their actions are taking them. So we ask that your agencies will be dispatched and that this the avenues will be open for the real message about your character of love to go forward. And we will see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.